0: This is The
1: Illusionist, in which I, Helen Zaltzman, apply for a job in language's slime factory. So, I've been working on this mini-series of episodes about minority languages and the threats they face and how they survive. Last episode, Welsh speakers took the drastic step of migrating to Argentina, but in researching this subject, I kept referring back to a pair of illusionists from a while ago, the key Part one, Rosetta, was about how a language survives in physical form when its humans die, featuring the smash hit archeological object, the Rosetta Stone, and its namesake, the Rosetta Disc, the linguistic key to the future. Part two is about how to decipher a dead language and why it might have died. This is a double bill of both those pieces to go with the survival mini series that we will pick up with next time. Here's part one, Rosetta.
2: Hold it if you like you can hold it by the edges
1: i'm holding by the edges the present and perhaps future of language this is um one of our prototypes of the rosetta disc um that we have on display here at the the interval the interval is down in the fort mason center for arts and culture a former u.s army base on the waterfront of san francisco bay the interval is home to a cocktail bar and cafe and library and the Long Now Foundation. My name is Laura Welcher. I'm the director of the Rosetta Project at the Long Now Foundation. The Long Now Foundation runs several projects that think about culture long-term, 10,000 years hence or so. One of these is the Rosetta Project to build a publicly accessible digital library of all the languages of the world. But you can't count on digital technology for all that long. Think about whatever you're using to store and read files and how that's changed in your lifetime well, that speed of obsolescence is not going to work for the Rosetta Project, thinking how to preserve language so it can be read 10,000 years hence. So they've made a hard copy, the Rosetta Disc, which is lying in my palm like a very expensive nickel coaster. That's about, what, three inches diameter? Yeah, about that. And it looks like a very beautiful medallion. that has got some symbolic-looking etchings on it.
2: Yeah, so that is what we call the human eye-readable side. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: yeah. of course it is with my human eyes i can read it yeah <laughs> what kind of inspector gadget type uh, glasses am i going to need to be able to read that
2: um uh, optical magnification actually just
1: oh, yes how many times magnified uh A thousand you know? power i oh, okay i'll, t- I'll just I'll take my glasses prescription Yeah. If you happen to have a suitably powerful microscope, slide the Rosetta disc into it and you'll be able to see that those etchings are actually 13,000 tiny pages of information about 1,500 languages. There's there's documentation for about 1,500 human languages on here.
2: Um, and, and of course, not a lot of documentation for each of those languages, but a little bit. And um, because there's uh, only a certain amount that we can put on a disc and keep it Uh, to the point where you can magnify it a thousand times and still read it. We are trying to be as efficient with the use of documentation as possible, and so we chose uh, parallel information, so the same information as much as we could for all of these languages.
1: Parallel information that is already culturally widespread around the world. In each language, there's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the first three chapters of the Book of Genesis...
2: We have other information about grammar and writing and maps. And then the bottom has, uh, you can see that kind of dense area on the disk, that has vocabularies for um, all of these languages that are the same set of vocabularies. If you've ever heard of the something called the Swadesh list was developed by a linguist named Morris Swadesh and he used it to compare languages and try to study how they um, diverged and if you could pinpoint it, you know, if you could figure out the rate at which languages diverge. But it just turns out to be a really useful tool in language documentation very commonly collected because it has words for parts of the human body and your family. So uh, it's a really nice, um, nice example of a kind of
1: parallel information we could collect for all of these languages. In the final version of the Swadesh list, there are a hundred words, including body parts, colours, animals, nature terms, and some verbs. So we put those on the disk, and that was that was our start. So on the
2: one hand, it is a record of the languages that we have at the beginning of the 21st century on planet Earth, and we know that's changing very quickly, right? So within a hundred years' time, we're going to have a very different picture of the languages that are spoken. Um, so there's that. But also the idea is that if you're going to have your first entry into a library, what should that be? And um, in, at least in terms of content, the idea is to create a future Uh, Rosetta Stone-like artifact, that could be the key
1: to uncoding language information that we leave to the future. There are many reasons why languages become extinct, but to pick an extreme example, a couple of thousand years hence, after the apocalypse, the only present-day language still being spoken then is, say, Portuguese. But there's all this written material from the lost cultures that you, the post-apocalyptic survivor, want to decrypt. Technology is totally different by then, except optical magnification, which remains fundamentally similar to how it's been since humans began using it millennia before. In the ancient ruins of Fort Mason, San Francisco, you find a Rosetta disc, successfully engineered to remain undamaged by fire and water and air and time. Around the edges of the disk there's writing large enough for you to read, but you see that there are more small markings on it. You put the disk under a microscope. You see text you recognise in Portuguese, and the text next to it is similar in size and shape, so you realise it is the parallel text. You start spotting a word that appears with similar frequency as in the Portuguese, thus you deduce what that one means. And then another. You start seeing linguistic patterns and gain some insight into what characters and writing system are being used, and if you stick with the task long enough, you've figured out that language. This isn't some futuristic dream, this has already happened. Most famously, with the Rosetta Project's namesake, the Rosetta Stone.
0: Amilona Rigolski, the curator for Egyptian written culture in the British Museum.
1: The British Museum houses the Rosetta Stone, it's the most visited exhibit in
0: the museum and one of the most important artefacts in the history of linguistics. It's most famously, of course, um, important because it provided the basis for the decipherment of the hieroglyphic writing system. Before that decipherment, there had been no proper understanding of the Egyptian writing system and of the Egyptian language.
1: Not bad for a lump of rock. 112 centimetres high, 75 centimetres wide and 28 centimetres thick. Bit pointy at the top where pieces are broken off. The Rosetta Stone is what is known as a
0: stela. A stila is a stone slab that um, usually contains uh, texts, can be a decree, can be a funerary text. People set up stila also to decorate their tombs, but it can also be an official document, which is the case in the Rosetta Stone. It can be a decree issued by the king or by priests. Um, with official information, state-related affairs, um, anything yeah related to official administration.
1: The decree on the Rosetta Stone was issued by priests in the year 196 BC, during the tumultuous reign of Child King Ptolemy V, to shore up his authority and also the priest's own status, as well as various points of information, such as the dates of celebrations and details of the priest's tax breaks. This dealer would probably have been standing outside a temple, so the public could remain informed about priestly admin. It wasn't intended to be a tool to decrypt hieroglyphics 2,000 years later. That was a
0: side effect of the decree being written in more than one language. It's basically bilingual documents in the sense that the hieroglyphic text and the demotic text represent Egyptian language.
1: Demotic was the more cursive, everyday script in which Egyptians used to write.
0: And then there's Greek, so two languages and three scripts. In the second century BC, there were not many people left who could read Egyptian hieroglyphs. So although the language was still used and was being spoken, the the distance between language and script becomes bigger and bigger, because by that time, um, people were more writing in Demotic. people started writing in Greek. So the hieroglyphic script was really becoming more and more exclusively used by priests.
1: In 391 AD, the Roman emperor Theodosius I ordered all non-Christian temples to be shut down, which was the end of writing in hieroglyphics, and thus eventually the ability to read and interpret them. It takes only a couple of generations of disuse for a language or a writing system to die. Whereas in the instance of Greek, though the language developed from its ancient form... There was never a fracture in the continuation of that knowledge. Generation after generation was able to understand it. So, in 1799, Napoleon's troops unearthed the Rosetta Stone in the foundations of a fortification near the Nile Delta town of Rashid, known in French as Rosetta. They recognised it as an important artefact, copies were made and scholars across Europe studied them. The big breakthrough was when some of them realised that hieroglyphics were reflecting spoken language. Although many attempts to decipher hieroglyphics had been made in the preceding 1400 years, they were all scuppered by the notion that each of the little pictures or glyphs, you know, the birds and eyes and beetles, were representing an idea. In fact, many of them are phonograms, so as if you drew a bee, as in the insect, to represent the sound of the letter B.
0: So it's that realisation that each sign can be assigned a phonetic value. That, that is the major breakthrough. And if you know that, then you can, of course, look at names, so the names in Greek, because names in Egyptian were always personal names, geographic names, um, were always written phonetically with a one-to-one phonetic uh, value to each sign. So once you have the Greek that you can read, the Greek name, You can then also read the Egyptian name, and from that you can start to compare with other hieroglyphic signs. The Greek text wasn't a direct transliteration of the hieroglyphics, but once the
1: scholars managed to identify the names, like Cleopatra and the Pharaoh Ptolemy, they were able to decode words and grammar around them. Then, at last, they had a key for all the hieroglyphic inscriptions and documents that had previously been untranslatable. The Rosetta Project is trying to make things easier for language decoders of the future, as the Rosetta disc bears parallel text in 1,500 languages. With any luck, a few would survive the apocalypse. As long as the disc does, too. It can be exposed to high temperatures, it can be exposed
2: to the atmosphere, like the disc right now that I am showing you is just sitting out in the open air. That's fine. In fact, it can be even, you know, exposed to a pretty high saline, like, atmosphere or environment, or like a marine environment, and it would be fine. It's not going to corrode.
1: So if you stepped out of here and uh, it accidentally fell into...
2: The ocean? Yeah, Yeah, it'd be fine. You could leave it on a cooling volcano, you could drop it into the ocean, it'd probably be just fine. But the Achilles heel of of this Rosetta disc is that you can scratch it, like you can obliterate it
1: pretty easily with an instrument or just by dropping it, so it requires some care. The Rosetta project is developing smaller, wearable versions of the disc, so people everywhere could carry one, and my imaginary post-apocalyptic future linguists are much more likely to come across one. Just remember not to keep yours in the same pocket as your car keys.
0: I, I still think that maybe a granodiorite slab has more chance of surviving than a, a disc. Maybe I mean maybe I'm too old-fashioned, but <laughs> it is more challenging
1: to carry around the Rosetta Stone than a three-inch disc.
0: But at least you won't lose it down the back of
1: the sofa. Since I visited the Long Now Foundation, they have produced an even smaller Rosetta disc that you can wear as a pendant, so you can play your part in preserving languages by carrying them around with you. Find out how to get one at rosettaproject.org. Right, so to revise, the first step was saving languages to a hard format to survive the years and apocalypses. Second step is how later you go and figure out those preserved languages. Here is the key part two, vestiges. In the last episode, the Rosetta Stone provided the key to Egyptian hieroglyphics by presenting them in parallel with Greek, which enabled them to be deciphered. But languages aren't designed to be deciphered. They were never meant to be incomprehensible in the first place.
3: Undeciphered, it's a temporary state, in my opinion. I look at it optimistically with the general guiding rule that anything that anybody over any period of time wrote should be decipherable by somebody else.
1: Irving Finkel is a curator in the Middle East Department of the British Museum.
3: The fact is that none of the world's writing systems, apart from codes, are meant to be obscure. And this is crucial. Normal writing systems that we can't read just because we haven't deciphered them, it doesn't mean that they're indecipherable. It means that we haven't done it. And the fact that we haven't done it depends on various things. Uh, Sometimes it's a matter of extreme rarity, so there's hardly anything to go on. And sometimes it's a matter of a profusion of inscriptions which are all too short to be diagnostic.
1: All that remains of some languages is the ancient equivalent of a few no-parking signs, or sometimes lists of names, but trying to deduce a language from those would be like trying to figure out the whole of English from a phone book. There's also the issue of the evidence being mostly whatever was written on durable materials, which skews the known vocabulary of that language towards the official and formal. Paper or leaves or skins are less likely to have survived time and climates than stone or clay or ivory or tombs. But those aren't really materials people would use for everyday jottings.
4: I mean, one problem is that you don't have a wide range of, if you're looking at the lexicon, what words exist in this language. You know, if you want to learn how to say happy birthday, tough, because um, that kind of stuff doesn't survive.
1: Classicist Nick Zare has spent years working on translating the language of Oscan, which for several centuries was spoken all over southern Italy, but by about zero BC it had died out.
4: But we haven't. We're, we're very well up on official terminology for approving things and commissioning things, for example.
1: It's like if in two thousand years' time, people went back and the only sources they had for twenty-first century English were council documents mm. about planning commission and yeah. stuff.
4: Yeah, exactly. So, and maybe some graffiti. That's another thing. Actually, graffiti written on walls.
1: I mean, how similar is that to modern graffiti, where you wouldn't necessarily get a grammatical phrase?
4: Well, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting in the sense that. If all you had to go on was British graffiti, you would actually get a different lexicon. You might very well get things that are grammatical. They're not uh, polite English, they're not correct standard English, but you'd learn something about the way people uh, sort of spoke on an everyday level, perhaps. Um, But it's also very easy to get um, carried away with that and, and you know, actually anything that's written down... By definition is not the same as speech, and by definition it isn't everyday, especially in a culture where illiteracy is much greater. You know, you must have had some education to be literate.
1: So again, the known vocabulary is not going to reflect the whole populace and how they actually use the language also bear in mind that the 2000 year old graffiti Nick is talking about includes stuff we wouldn't necessarily think of as graffiti now. There was quite a lot of business painted on walls like electoral posters and official notices.
4: Actually in the ancient world the equivalent of those kind of um, polite notice please don't park outside here is written on the wall as well. There's more or less no kind of public signage. There isn't a public body who goes around putting speed limit signs up and saying this is such and such road.
1: People have been studying OSCON for about 250 years so far and considering they can't exactly run it through Google Translate, they've made quite good progress
4: understanding it. The reason we can understand OSCON fairly well is because it was related to Latin. So in the same way that um, Romanian and French, Spanish, Italian are all related to each other, um, if you found another language all of a sudden in that family, you could have a reasonably good stab at understanding quite a lot of it. But sometimes we just come across things. And we go, oh, i got no idea what this is.
1: How do you feel when you come up against an Austin word that you cannot crack? Determined? Frustrated? Yeah. What sort of size of lexicon do you have in Austin?
4: Um, well, not huge. <laughs> um, uh, as I say, it really—it's really it's really dependent on what's on what's been preserved for us so we're pretty good on the names of gods the institutional vocabulary quite good things like magistracies that sort of thing we know how to say to sign something or to mark it because really this is actually a really lovely find there is a quite a large sort of roof tile that's been found that has four sets of footprints on it two left and two right as if someone has just walked across it and on one side it says in latin The girlfriend of Herennius marked this, or signed it, with her foot while we were putting out the tiles. And it says more or less the same thing on the other side in Oscan. So we know the verb to, you know, walk on someone's tile and leave an imprint in the cement.
1: Egyptian got the Rosetta Stone. Oscan just has a tile with
4: feet on it. I mean, that's an interesting case because in Latin it says the girlfriend of Herennius. In um, Oscar it says the debt free of Herennius and we just don't know what this word means. It doesn't even look like a very good Oscar word. Um, you'd expect it to have a different ending and we don't know what it means. Is it her name? Does it mean slave girl? Does it mean girlfriend? We just we just don't know what it means.
1: Could it be a bawdy slang for girlfriend?
4: So it could be. I mean it, it could really be anything.
1: This is the trouble when translating an extinct language. You can make educated guesses based on similar languages. You can study the samples of writing to find patterns that are clues to what the words might mean and how the grammar might have worked. But then you can discover something that doesn't fit in with what you thought you knew, and you're at a loss to understand it.
4: What really helps is when you have, like the Rosetta Stone, where you have a language that you don't know, or a writing system that you don't know, that's translated into another language that says exactly the same thing. So that's a really important... Um, Feature. If you have enough of those, then that gives you a really good chance of cracking a language that you don't know.
1: What are the odds, though?
4: Well, bilingual institutions are not uncommon in the ancient world. You do still have to be lucky to find them. It's not rare for people to be bilingual in the ancient world. We tend to think of a situation where one nation state equals one language which is really not true of the modern day any more than it was of the ancient.
3: And it's very easy in England to think that you only really need to know one language. And if you speak English and people don't understand it, you just speak louder sort of thing. You don't need to bother with other languages. And so there's a kind of common idea that knowing one language is natural. But in point of fact, it's not natural.
5: Monolingualism is an aberration. Most people have been multilingual. This is the linguistic historiographer Julie Tatal Andresen. He's been
1: studying how and why languages vanish.
5: The human body and brain is quite well adapted to multilingualism. So the ideology of monolingualism is a fairly new phenomenon, only the last couple hundred years. So this whole it's such a distortion. It is when the nation state came into being, which is sort of late 18th century political theory. Think of the language situation before the mid-18th century. There were empires. Empires were multilingual conglomerations whose borders waxed and waned with marriage and and war. Nobody cared about linguistic diversity. The great threat to unity was religious diversity. When the state decided to uh, mobilize language as a resource for creating the nation, you got the ideology of the monolingual nation-state, so where we want linguistic borders to coincide with national borders. But of course they never did. And part of the fallout
1: of this process is that as one language dominates, the smaller, more regional languages die off.
5: People only give up their native language when it is in their best interest, their economic or health interest. It can be slowly over time, but usually it's a wholesale just dropping of your own native language and just acquiring the language of power. So you lose your solidarity language. It it certainly has no more in-group effect for you. You can't get a job, you can't do anything. You you may maintain it yourself among your friends, but you don't pass it down to your children. So it can happen in a generation, two generations. And this is probably
4: how Oskin got wiped out. In the course of the first millennium, the Romans stomp all over Italy uh, and take it over. When you get beaten up by the Romans, basically you have to sign a treaty with them, which says you will send men to fight in their armies and that you won't fight against them. The Romans don't really care what language you're speaking, but they do found colonies, Roman colonies over Italy and the official language there is latin and all the colonists are romans so they'll speak latin so basically it's a bit like the reason english is so widespread today there's a lot of soft power so if you want to get on in the world you have to be able to speak latin if you want to be a player in the roman state if you want to make money if you want to have power you have to speak latin
5: What gives language prestige along written tradition often has something to do with religion. It's a language of government, the language of politics. Uh, That gives language a prestige, and any language with those resources is going to have a better chance of survival. I would say that's the one thing, if a language has prestige, that is almost the determiner of its fate. If it's considered prestigious, people are going to learn it. If it's considered not prestigious, people aren't going to learn it. It seems like a distinctly non-linguistic feature, but it's, language is a social product. Money talks, what language does it speak?
1: These episodes were produced by me, Helen Zaltzman, with help from Laura Welcher from The Rosetta Project, Nick Harris and Sean Togood, Ilona Rogalski and Irving Finkel from The British Museum, Nick Zare and Raquel da Felicia, and the linguist and author, Julie and andresen Your randomly selected word from the dictionary today is Poudre. Noun. A sense of shame or embarrassment, especially with regards to matters of a sexual or personal nature. Try using it in an email today. Find me at Allusionist Show on Facebook and Twitter, and you can always visit the show at its forever home at theallusionist.org.